second episode of the Batman Family Reunion, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I am Sean M. Myers, one of your hosts, and with me is my co-host and bat cousin, Paul Keene. How are you doing, Paul? Hey, Sean, I'm doing great. Let me just wipe my fingers off from the fried chicken and I'll be ready to go. How about you? How has your month been? Oh, it's been great. And let me tell you, I can't wait to dig into that beef wellington and frozen souffle with hot strawberry <laughs> sauce. What, what do you want to tell the folks at home about this show? Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 1978. And then it rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing on as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints before morphing into all new stories starring other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man Bat, and even Ragman and the Demon. Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman family reunion. Let's dive right into issue number two. Issue number two of Batman Family is cover dated November, December, 1975. The release date was August 7th, 1975. It has a page count of 64 pages with a cover price of 50 cents. This issue has four reprints and the cover artist is Gil Kane and Murphy Anderson. Paul, what do you think of this cover? I like the cover, Sean. It's got this white background, different than the red background last issue. At the top is that DC giant trade dress, the same as it was in the first issue, with a little tiny Batman family logo. And I, I love that because it's if that's the only part of the cover that was peeking out at the newsstand, uh, that's different. It was just a, a text, Batman family, on the first issue. And it's got your two fetching images of Batgirl and Robin at the top, drawn by Mike Grell. You move down after the big Batman family logo, you've got the floating head, much bigger bigger than the first issue on down the left-hand side this time. You've got Alfred, Vicky Vale, the Clue Master makes an appearance, and then Mystery Man. So we'll get the Mystery Man in a little bit. And then the central image in the bottom two-thirds of the cover is Batgirl and Batman literally playing tug of war with Robin in the middle. Both of them grabbed his arm and they're yanking each other. The text at the bottom promises an astonishing adventure. Batgirl breaks up the dynamic duo. So a couple things that I would comment on the cover. So this main image actually is exactly the same as Detective Comics number 369 from 1967, which the lead story is, is from. Uh, as you mentioned, it's this all reprint issue. It's the only all reprint issue of the whole Batman Family series. And we talked a little bit about that in our last episode. It is an effective shot, obviously. It gives a great shot of Batgirl centrally, who, if you think about it, 1967, was still pretty new as she just started appearing on the Batman TV show. So they're really going for that. Cover copy is different. The only thing that's disappointing to me, the background is different. I don't know if it's colored differently or what. They left out the coolest part. If you actually go back and look at the Detective 369 cover, it's clear that it's at night and they have these great bat shadows behind all three characters on the ground. And the cover here, I don't know if it's because of the, the white background or what, but they made it, it clearly looks like it's happening during the day as opposed to during night. So while it's an effective cover, it's a little disappointing we didn't get a brand new cover, but it's Gil Kane and Murphy Anderson in top form, I would think. How about you, Sean? What'd you think of it? Yeah, when we said it's an all reprint issue, that even includes the cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> I do like the cover. This will be a familiar refrain for the first like I think nine issues. I'm not a huge fan of boxed in covers where there's a little box. I just wish everything else could just be floated over the image. 
But that being said, now, obviously, when this image was first drawn, they had no idea that there was going to be a Batman family book. But it is neat how Batgirl is in the front and then Robin and then Batman, because even this highlights that it's the Batman family stars right. that are going to be in this issue. Right. And in terms of the floating heads, I think all of them look great, e even though you can see they are different artists doing them. They don't look that dissimilar to one another. Yeah. I agree. It's an effective cover. I think we talked about last time. Clearly, issue number two was a lower investment on DC's part. They didn't commission a new story. They didn't even commission a new cover. So somebody was pulling these things together and we'll see that reuse of material throughout the issue. So we will post the image of the cover as well as additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website. Sean, can you remind our listeners what that website is? Absolutely. Fireandwaterpodcast.com. Now, let's jump into the first story. All right. So that first story, as we mentioned, is reprinted from 1967 from Detective Comics number 369, and it's entitled Batgirl Breaks Up the Dynamic Duo, starring, of course, Batgirl, Robin, and Batman, coming in at 13 pages. The team on the story was Gardner Fox with pencils by Carmine Infantino and the inks by Sid Green. Batgirl uses her new multicolor light tracer on her bat cycle and follows a gang of crooks into the misty swamp. The domino daredevil holds her own against the gang, but Batman and Robin crash the party in time to subdue the final crook in their condescending Silver Age way. But Batman trips and takes a header into the swamp water. Just think about that sentence for a second, Sean. <laughs> but after he emerges, Batgirl immediately figures out that he is showing symptoms of swamp fever with chills and a mustard complexion. After researching the condition at the library, Babs learns that within a week, Batman will collapse. If he collapses during the day, no problem. But if he collapses while fighting crime as Batman, it could be fatal. She knows that Batman will not stop fighting crime, so she conspires with Robin to help him. They decide to team up so that they can get to crimes before Batman. Batman is perplexed as to why and figures Robin has a crush on Batgirl. I can understand that. <laughs> anyway, the dynamite duo keep beating Batman to the scene of crime, annoying him. After several nights, Batman decides to change his route going on crime fighting and is able to beat them to a crime scene. But as Batgirl feared would happen, Batman collapses and passes out from the swamp fever before his fight is over. Fortunately, Batgirl and Robin have arrived just in time to protect him from the crooks. When he awakens, Batman admits that Batgirl and Robin were right to deceive him since he wouldn't have stopped crime fighting. He rewards them by asking them to sub for him for a few days. You bet we will, is the answer. Sean, what do you think of this story? I like this story a lot. I think it's super neat. I will say, in a way, I was lucky that the first few issues of Batman Family I got as back issues after I was already established much further into Batman Family. So I knew about the Batgirl Robin team up and all of that. If at the time this would have come out and it was all reprints, I probably would have been a little disappointed just because it wasn't new stuff. But I, I think the story is great. It's fun. In terms of a reprint, I think it fantastically fits the theme. It's the first time Batgirl and Robin are teaming up on their own. I agree 100%. I was just getting to the age where I could tell the, an old story apart from the new ones. This was very much 
in the style and theme. We'll see that a lot in this issue of the 66 Batman TV show and the comics that came mm-hmm. out at that time period, which were less than 10 years old at the time of the printing of this issue. I do like the art. This is Carmine Infantino in his mm-hmm. prime, right? A lot of the stuff yes. that I read later on in the late 70s and early 80s, Carmine Infantino, like when he came back to The Flash, yeah. wasn't that great and I was not a fan. Yeah. There's a lot of places in this story that the art is really pretty good. If you go back, start on page one, and they do this a lot with the reprints in the early issues of Batman Family. They give us context. They talk about the story of the first team up between Batgirl and Robin, and it takes us back to the time when Dick Grayson was still in high school, Babs was still a librarian, and Bruce still lived in a suburban mansion. So, <laughs> so I love how they set the stage for us. They talk about, in, in a later one, they talk about, remember Aunt Harriet? I don't know if it was Bob Ruzakis or whoever wrote these little intros, but they're pretty fun. And I'm definitely glad that both Batgirl and Robin would soon be getting much, much better logos <laughs> because because the, these two are yeah, Neither one of those logos is very good. So on page one, you've got Batman and Batgirl both saying, hey, come with me, Robin. And Robin's, I love how Robin's head is swiveling back and forth. <laughs> <laughs> As I move on in the story, I think some of the best art is on pages three and four. The action sequence where Batgirl is taking on the crooks. She's driving over the bridge and they lower the bridge and she jumps off her cycle upside down and smashes into one guy and clobbers the other guys. Then they see in the distance Batman and Robin come in on the Batmobile and they can't get there until the bridge is raised again and she flips one of the crooks into the switch and enables Batman and Robin to come over the bridge. So that sequence is really very well done. It's great. When she throws the thug into the device that lowers the bridge, it's so well done. It's very dimensional for a flat image. And I'm not exactly sure if what I'm going to talk about is Carmine Infantino's art or the inking of Sid Green. But on page two, panel four, the crooks basically had like a hostage and threw him out of the car. And that image of that man pointing, like, Half of his face is in shadow. I mean, it just, and the moon is behind him. It is it's just so evocative of a night scene. And especially for like a book in the 60s, I just think I just think that one panel is just so amazingly yeah, that, well done. Absolutely. The funniest part of the story is Batman taking a header into the swamp. When I reread this in preparation, I just, I laughed out loud because again, you don't see that today, but oh, my foot slipped. I'm taking a header into the swamp waters. I agree. I am not a fan of the infallible Batman who has 13,000 plans for everything that might go wrong. I, I, don't, I don't like that one at all. I, I like it when he makes a mistake and can learn and, and then something happens from the story. Yeah. I'm I'm not a fan of Super Batman. Yeah, but you got to admit, slipping and then falling headfirst into a swamp is, <laughs> is a little bit low, even for the non-Super <laughs> I dig page six. Bab's doing the research. She's got her Princess Leia haircut long before Princess Leia. She's got her glasses. And a little thing I noticed is she's a PhD. I don't recall that being a story point ever, the fact that she's got a PhD I mean, which was pretty interesting. But I do like her doing the research at the library and saying, "Uh uh-oh, I better protect Batman. So that's pretty neat. Oh, yeah. I work in a library. So anytime you see librarian Barbara Gordon, I love it. I I think it's fantastic. (laughs) Moving on. I like how she's using her technology, right? She's still using that rainbow light thing to follow the Batmobile. Okay, hold (laughs) up. I love comics and I love tech, James Bond gadgets and stuff like that. I love every single one of that and honestly i can believe a man can come to another planet with a different 
level of gravity and be able to fly. I absolutely believe that. I think that some kid could get bitten by a radioactive spider and be able to cling to a wall. I am 10,000% in agreement with that. I don't grasp any kind of usage of this multi-light and i love the way like i love bright colors I, you know i'm a four-year-old i love bright shiny flashy <laughs> things so i think it looks great i don't understand any kind of thing of how these lights get into a vibration <laughs> so if if any of my bat kin folk want to explain this to me in the comments or email me or whatever however you need to get that message to me i'm welcoming it but i need to know because i don't get it at i think all. it just needed to be because it's so in the story <laughs> needed for the story i mean that's you know we talk about these silver age stories and overall they're silly in how they set things up as we know you've got to sort of look past some of that and say the situation <laughs> that they find themselves in is interesting and the outcomes from that but boy you start thinking too long about that i'm right with you got some more batgirl action on that page talking about the green bay packers lost a great linebacker when they didn't draft me in a draft i thought that was funny page eight is where we actually get to tug of war and i don't know what you think about this sean i know that a lot of times especially julius schwartz edited books which by this time, Batman and Detective were in 1967. They would do the cover first, and then they'd go away and tell the writer to come up with a story. So I can certainly imagine a situation where Julie commissioned Gil Kane to do that cover and then sent away Gardner Fox to come up with the storyline. And then they worked it in right here. I like it. And it can be silly. Are they really going to be fighting over Robin in the mid-court of police headquarters? <laughs> but hey, I know what it's like to be the most popular boy in school and people fighting <laughs> over me. So I'm I'm with Robin on this one. It's nice to be wanted. <laughs> Batman's like, will you cut out this foolishness? I <laughs> I think I think Batman getting annoyed at all this is pretty humorous. And it's funny, you can really see the age difference between Barbara and Dick in this. I mean, well, obviously, years have gone by, but you really see the age difference here versus when they're in Batman family. Because even though obviously they are the same age difference, there's a difference between an eight-year-old and a twelve-year-old versus a twenty-four-year-old and a twenty-year-old. You know that as as both people get older, even though that. Right. Age difference is the same in years. It's different mentally. Right. I mean, they talk about Robin being in high school. That's probably referring to page nine. He's shorter than Batgirl. He's looking up to yeah. her. If he's in high school, he's right just started high school. Yeah, yeah, ninth grade. Batgirl's a librarian, PhD apparently, you know, so she's mid-20s at this point, almost a 10-year age difference. So that's disappeared by the modern times and, and becomes less important as time goes on. But anyway, what else? What do we got next? So next is the first appearance of the sidecar. It's got the R for Robin on it. She's like, look at this, Robin. I've got a sidecar. Batman's like, uh, you really leaving me for a sidecar? <laughs> <laughs> I, I would. My dad had a motorcycle and I would pray every day that he would get a sidecar so I could ride in it like Robin. Wow. Now, he did get a sidecar, but it was 10 years after I moved out of the house. <laughs> <laughs> She's still using a rainbow thing 
to track yes. the crooks. And page 11 is great, especially that last panel where they're working together. Mm-hmm. And I, I think this is probably a page we'll put in the, the images online, but the, the image of Batgirl and Robin, she's driving her motorcycle with Robin perched in the sidecar in a serious looks on their face for the story. And then on one side, you got Robin stalking a, a criminal, another one, Batgirl's tripping over. You know, it's really effective sort of montage. You can see in a movie, like it being a montage scene of several different crimes they're breaking up. So I thought that was an effective sequence. I can hear the musical background (laughs) of this movie montage. I do have a question, firstly for Cousin Paul. And then if he doesn't know for all of the kinfolk, all of the aunts, uncles, cousins, brothers, nephews, nieces, the image of Batgirl and Robin, was that used in merchandising? And I've read this issue 400 times, but that image just seems so familiar to me. But I, I couldn't find any merchandising, but just looks familiar to me. It is pretty iconic for sort of a silver age Batgirl and Robin on the motorcycle. It's pretty cool image, but I I don't recall it being used on anything. Again, we'll throw that out to the the Bat cousins and see if there's anybody who has that. We should have mentioned this issue. You can read on DC Universe if you are so inclined. Then we're wrapping up the story. And of course, Batman does actually collapse. And I like how the fact that Batman gets annoyed, so he changes his route and decides to go the other way and actually beats them to a crime for the first time. And then they find him, again, using the the rainbow thing. And they got here just in time before this crook about to shoot Batman. And he wakes up, he's like, what's happening? And and then they tell him he's got the swamp fever. And he's like, well, I guess you guys were right. And (laughs) and they end with that, you bet we will. I think that's great great ending i like it and it is for a silver age story it is like a real sense of danger because you don't know when he's going to collapse yeah if you tell him oh don't go he's like no cry i must fight crime every yeah. night like yeah. he, he's not going to stop why couldn't they go with him everywhere <laughs> You know, the the logic doesn't really hold up for why they have to be apart, but it creates a fun situation. And I agree with you 100%. It's a great way if they have to have an all reprint issue to reintroduce the concept of the team to all the readers of this issue and the whole theme of the Batman family, which is great. Yeah, I agree. Okay. Normally at this time, we'd move on to a feature we call Gabriel's Horn, which was the hip hop and hangout for the Teen Titans in 1970s to talk about that most 1970s moment in Batgirl Robin history. Since we have a reprint, we're going to skip over this segment. So instead of uh, that, we're just going to jump right into the second story. So you want to give us a synopsis there, Sean? Absolutely. Our next story is called The Dynamic Trio, and it's starring Batman, Robin, and Mystery Man. It comes in at 12 pages. The writer is Edmund Hamilton. The penciler is Sheldon Mordoff. And the inker is Charles Paris. And it originally appeared in Detective Comics number 245 from 1957. At the beginning of the story, Commissioner Gordon is in his office, being yelled out by Mayor No Name because Gotham City criminals are being smuggled out of the country, and Gotham City cannot lose its standing as the number one home of criminal activity. Mayor No Name tells Jimbo G that he wants Gordon to give the case to Batman and Robin. BNR meet with Jimmy, and as the dynamic duo are leaving police headquarters, they run into Lois Lake, I mean Vicky Vale who has been following Batman. They tell Vicky that they need the help of someone else to crack the case. This sends Vicky's mind reeling. As far as she's concerned, Batman is the tops, the king, the boss, the BMOC. That night at the docks, Vicky follows Batman and sees the man who is better than Batman, Mystery Man. 
On a boat at the docks, a huge diesel engine is being loaded into the ship's hold. When Batman notices that, uh, I'm sorry, let me check my issue here to make sure that I'm 100% correct on this. He notices that the lube holes aren't where they should be. Well, lo and behold, out pops a criminal. And then the dynamic trio. Ugh, seriously, the dynamic trio. Why weren't they called the Titanic trio or the terrific trio or the tip-top trio? Anywho, the heroes of the story capture the crook. And when Vicky is interviewing them for Look Magazine, I mean, View Magazine, Batman gives a brother a solid and makes sure to mention that they were the ones helping Mystery Man. Vicky finds out that B&R are going to have a victory celebration party with Mystery Man at the Batcave, so Vicky has the most intelligent, rational, and logical thought-out process that makes the most amount of sense. Mystery Man is a Batman robot in disguise. <laughs> I'm going to skip ahead a little bit since you've already read the story. He's not. In the Batcave, Mystery Man, who is not a Batman robot or a robot of any kind, does the heavy lifting and figures out that they need a list of mighty big power users, which leads them to one certain warehouse. Vicky follows Batman, by the way, I have cut and pasted that phrase in here, to the warehouse where she fake trips so that she can feel Mystery Man's arm muscle beneath his skin-tight costume. By the way, I now like and respect Vicky Vale. When she discovers that he's not a man of metal, but does have the most intelligent, rational, and logical thought-out process that makes the most amount of sense. Mystery Man is Superman, the Man of Steel, in disguise. I'm going to skip ahead a bit since you've already read the story. He's not. Mystery Man thuds a criminal who was going to escape the country in a fake dynamo and tells BNR that he found earplugs in the crook's pocket, which he knows are used when flying a puddle jumper. Okay, I'm taking way too long already, so I'm going to leap over that leap of logic and get to the part where Vicky follows Batman to the airport and gets in the Batmobile's trunk. Because she's hoping to act out the scene from out of sight with Jennifer Lopez and George Clooney. But all that happens is that Batman drives Mystery Man to his house and walks him to his front door during the middle of the day. The next day, Vicky lets everyone know that she figured out this big mystery by the way, she did no sleuthing to come to this conclusion, that Mystery Man is Commissioner Gordon who didn't want to go against Mayor No Name's directive to give the case over to BNR. And instead of just partnering together, which the mayor didn't say he couldn't do, it was much easier to create a new costumed hero who, spoiler alert, would not appear in Who's Who. Paul, what did you think of the dynamic trio? Well, very entertaining. Vicky, to me, was always a bit of a meh. They put her in just to be like Lois Lane. But other than that, the leaps in logic are astounding. Oh, he's got to be a robot. Oh, he's not a robot. Oh, he's got to be Superman. <laughs> oh, he's not Superman. <laughs> just hysterical. <laughs> the art is terrific. And I'm going to talk about the art a little bit when we wrap up the discussion of the story. But I do really like the art in the story. You know, it's very late 1950s. Batman still has the old style bat on his chest and not the, the yellow circle. 
I have to say, Sean, the very first panel on the, on the second page, we're at a distant foreign port. Two guards that are in safari hats are like, look, that's a crook wanted by American police. <laughs> And he's just got off the ship from Gotham City. That just starts it off right there for me. These guys are into their job to notice an American <laughs> crook getting off at a foreign port. So, you know, I lovingly teased it in my synopsis. But this is a fun story. And like you said, the art for the time that this was published, I think the art is very good. Like there is a sense of motion. Absolutely. A sense of movement. It does look great. So the mayor comes in and tells Commissioner Gordon he's not doing a good enough job. So you need to get off the case. We need to bring in Batman and Robin, the heavy hitters. In the middle of that page, Batman is serving Dick and Bruce T. And the bat signal's in the window. I'm like, what time of the day is that? You've got the mayor just going into Gordon's office. They shine the bat signal. Alfred's getting tea. Is that in the daytime? Is it the nighttime? You know, I don't know what time that is. But they answer the call and head to police headquarters. That's for sure. So then Vicky runs into them. And it's great because she is following them around town everywhere. She follows them nonstop. That's, that's like her beat. Her beat is following that. You know, I didn't realize it till I read your synopsis, but following him around. Why didn't she just follow him back to the Batcave? Because apparently this Batman lets her follow him everywhere she everywhere he goes. And I love it because every time she checks in with the editor, he's like, Yeah, Vicky, yeah, do it. Yeah, Vicky, yeah, go. Vicky, yeah, go get it. Yeah. <laughs> so then she sees he's hooking up with mystery man and she's like who who is this who 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 are you together with the premise is solid right who is this guy who batman and robin are with and obviously she's curious the leaps of logic as we mentioned are funny the fact that they recognize that this engine is not really an engine it sort of goes along with the 50s batman with giant props and giant machinery and we'll see that again when we get to the factory where they're manufacturing these props of things just a funny setup one of the best things about this story which is coming up on this page it does really show off commissioner gordon at this point we quote unquote don't know it's commissioner gordon but after you read it and go back he's figuring out the wheel is a fake and he definitely is a man of action when the shooting starts he lifts up the cover-up to protect him from the bullets. Right. If you look onto page five, there's a great shadow. You know, Batman and Robin are going down mm-hmm. off the boat to try to grab the crook, and Mystery Man is operating the crane, <laughs> which is a which is funny. But there's a great shadow of them against the, the side of the boat, which which is a really nice effect. Yeah, and really, I think that panel looks like it could have been interpreted by Adams in the 70s, like with mm. that big shadow yeah. in the background. Like I, I totally could see the way Alex Ross does yeah. homages yeah. To, to old time comic books. I could see Adams doing yeah, that. Yeah, no, absolutely. We get a hint that Mystery Man is not a Superman or a robot or anything like that because uh, Alfred talks about how uh, Monster asked him not to go down to the Batcave while Mystery Man was there. So clearly Mystery Man doesn't know Bruce's identity. That's my beef with this issue. Alfred, of all people, other than Robin, the most trusted person that <laughs> Bruce Wayne Batman is. And they're not even going to clue him in who this is. And it's Commissioner Gordon who like, he knows... There's really no payoff to not telling Alfred other than like this one panel. They didn't treat Alfred right in this story. But like you said, it's a much better look for Commissioner Gordon than it was in the in the story we had last month. Yes, yes. It doesn't even get some physical action, which, you know, for an older guy did pretty well. 
So the next part I want to point out and think is pretty funny, bottom left-hand corner, page nine, all four of them are crowded into the Batmobile. (laughs) You see the four little heads of of Batman and Robin and the crook and mystery man, and they're all crowded into the Batmobile with the bubble top. And that's just a a funny look, if you ask me. Absolutely. Yeah. Kind of similar to my feelings about Batgirl's light. cycle tracer the earplugs with the (laughs) airplane i don't get because i'm a modern person so like when i hear earplugs i kind of think of those little foamy things you put in your ear now maybe older readers could tell me when you flew airplanes back then did you get like a special kind of earplug because i guess i could understand that if it was stamped with gotham city (laughs) airport i could understand that but the earplugs to the airplane leap that I'm not sure about. And I do like the way it wraps up, notwithstanding the fact that they walk him to the front door and Vicky was in the trunk of the Batmobile. <laughs> but of course, Batman left the trunk open for her so that she could expose Commissioner Gordon as being Mystery Man. And he get the credit that he rightfully deserves, which is a, a good a good move on Batman's part, for sure. And he gets a little kiss on the cheek from Vicky at the end to prove it. I thought she'd be furious. He said, <laughs> in fact, she thinks he's sweet. I do like that. Because definitely at this time, Commissioner Gordon was a part of the Batman family. But I don't know that he really even had any kind of solo stories or even kind of like spotlight issues or anything. So this probably was one of the few times we really saw him in action. So overall, fun story. Again, highlights the fact that Gordon is capable, which is better than last issue, and get to see someone else who purported to join the Batman family, but really. (laughs) Exactly. Before we leave this story, though, Sean, I'd like to dive a little deeper into Sheldon Moldoff, who did the art for this story. I mentioned last issue that I like to research these a little bit, and I've always known about Sheldon Moldoff that he was a ghost artist for Bob Kane back in the 50s and 60s. But other than that, I didn't know a whole lot. So I did a little research, and a lot of the information that I want to mention here is published in Alter Ego magazine, specifically uh, issues number four and 59, uh, published by Tomorrow's. Anyway, he was born in 1920 in New York. And the cool thing was that he was introduced to cartooning by future comics artist Bernard Bailey, who created Spectre and Hourman, who happened to live in the same apartment house as Sheldon Moda, which is really cool. He said, I was drawing in chalk on the sidewalk, Popeye and Betty Boop and other popular cartoons of the day. And he came by and looked at it and said, hey, do you want to learn how to draw cartoons? I said, yeah. He said, come on, I'll show you how to draw. (laughs) So from that, in the Golden Age, his work includes the first cover spotlighting the Golden Age Green Lantern, issue number 16 of All-American Comics. He didn't draw much Green Lantern, but he did become one of the earliest artists for the character Hawkman, beginning with Flash Comics number four in 1940. So at 20 years old, he became the regular Hawkman artist. He drew many Hawkman chapters in All-Star Comics as well. They're really nicely drawn if you have any of those Justice Society archives. And a real tidbit is he was the first one to draw the formerly civilian character Shiera Sanders in costume as Hawkgirl in All-Star Comics number five. So then post-war superhero comics went out of fashion. He became a pioneer in some horror comics. In 1948, he packaged two ready-to-print titles called This Magazine is Haunted and Tales of the Supernatural. And he took them to Fawcett Comics, who didn't want to get into horror at the time. Then he took them to Bill Gaines at EC Comics and signed a contract saying he would get a royalty from them publishing those horror comics. A couple months later, Tales from the Crypt came out. And Gaines reneged on the deal and said, we don't owe you anything. And according to the article in Arnold Ego, the EC attorney threatened to blacklist Moldoff if he took any legal action. So he took it back to Fawcett, who agreed this time. And then according to the Moldoff quote, they took the magazine as haunted and worlds of fear and then strange to censor story. And what they did was pay me $100 for the title 
And then they gave me as much work as I wanted. And I also did the covers, but he did not get a royalty there. So by 1953, Moldoff became one of those, as I mentioned, primary Batman ghost artists who, along with Wynn Mortimer and Dick Sprang, drew stories credited to Bob Kane. But while Dick Sprang ghosted as a DC employee, Moldoff had a secret arrangement. And he says, I worked for Bob Kane as a ghost from 1953 to 1967. DC did not know that I was involved. That was the handshake agreement I had with Bob. You do the work and don't say anything, Shelley, and you've got steady work. And he didn't pay great, but it was steady work. It was security. I knew we had to do a minimum of 350 to 360 pages a year. I was also doing other work at the same time for editors Jack Schiff and Murray Boltonoff at DC. They didn't know I was working on Batman for Bob, so I was busy. Between the two, I never had a dull year, which is the compensation I got for being Bob's ghosts for keeping myself anonymous, which is really uh, fascinating. Moldoff and various writers created several new characters for Batman, including Ace the Bat-Hound, the original Batwoman, the Calendar Man, Mr. Freeze, Bat Knight, and the original Batgirl, Second Clayface, and even Poison Ivy. But And here's the tragedy. In 1967, Moldoff was let go by DC, along with many other prominent writers and artists who had made demands for health and retirement benefits. His final Batman stories were published in Batman 199 and Detective 372. Uh, 19, February 1968. And the story that we just read was actually one of his last. That was from 369. And three issues later, he was gone. He did turn to animation, doing storyboards for animated TV series and things like that. And then finally, 30 years later, he did a chapter in the prestige format book, Superman and Batman World's Funnest, written by Evan Dorkin. Mm. You may be familiar with that. That was his first work for DC in 30 years. He retired to Florida, passed away in 2012. And I am fortunate enough that I actually have a comic signed by Sheldon Moldoff, Batman number 152. And what's cool about this, Sean, is it actually has a business card attached to it. I bought this at a show. It has a business card. It says comic art by Sheldon Moldoff with his phone number and his address in Florida. <laughs> and it's got a little picture of him drawing, which is awfully cute, like him at his, at his work table and a Batman and a Hawkman right on the business card. Oh my Pretty gosh. Neat. Anyway, that was a little long, but here's somebody that deserves, he's drawn a lot of stories uh, for DC Comics over the years and all of us who enjoy them owe him a little something. The story about him being one of the ones that got fired by DC. I had heard that story before, hadn't connected him to it, but I, that's how we got people like Len Wein and Marv Wolfman and Jerry Conway. They didn't know it at the time, but they were replacing all these people because they would work cheaper. And that's uh, an unfortunate part of the history of, of comics. So anyway, thought that was interesting for our listeners. Oh my gosh. I, well, it was interesting for me. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Well, a lot. It, oh it's gosh, fun. Wow. I, I like diving into the history. So I'll try to keep it a little shorter in the future, but that's, he had a lot of stuff going on. So let's move on. We, we do want to go to our second break segment called Bat Branding, where we talk about the house ads and the letters pages. So this inside front cover has a, an ad for Heroes in Action, which was a, an action figure line. I didn't really have any of these. I'm not familiar with them too much. Maybe some of our toy fans like Chris Franklin know more about them, but they, I think what they're advertising is they're these army guys with rock bases that you could move a base on it and somehow manipulate the action and maybe the sound. So uh, Heroes in Action on the inside front cover. And I wonder if maybe that action inspired the superpowers line to have action in there. In their figures. Maybe. The next one I'm going to talk 20 minutes about is a two-page spread of not treasuries, <laughs> as I was just informed, because that's what Marvel called them, but the limited collector's edition, first edition specials. And on the left-hand side, you have different covers of the first editions, which were all the reprints of the original books. 
And then uh, Superman, the two Shazam treasuries, that beautiful Batman treasury with the bat signals with the villains and the secret origins of supervillains, which is one of my favorite covers, which has the heroes and villains running against each other. Yeah, that's the one we talked about last month. That's a good one. Absolutely love it. Then on the next page, we have the Dick Tracy treasury, which is good for what it is. But the A number one beautiful edition of Super Friends in the not treasury, but limited collector edition size. And I just recently told this story, but I am going to recap it again. When I was a kid, my brother played rinky-dink football every Sunday, and I hate football. So I would walk into town and go to a newsstand. But unfortunately, that newsstand was closed. But I literally remember having my face pressed up against the glass and looking in (laughs) and seeing Super Friends on sale and not getting it until many, 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 many years later as part of an (laughs) eBay lot. Yeah, that would certainly worth your dollar there. Great, great cover. I think that's Alex Toth, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Someone will correct me. It's Alex Toth, but then someone else did the Superman face. I'm not sure who covered the face. Uh, The Batkin folk will tell me in the comments very nicely. The next ad we're going to talk about is another two-page spread. This time it turns the book on its side so we can see the lineup for CBS Saturday morning. Eight o'clock, Pebbles and Bam Bam. 8.30, 8.30, The Bugs Bunny and Roadrunner Hour, 9.30, Scooby-Doo, Where Are You? Throughout the day, we're going to have in the news, little news segments. <laughs> but most importantly, at 10 and 10.30, the Shazam Isis Hour. Yay! <laughs> I'm a huge Captain Marvel Shazam fan. 11 o'clock, The Far Out Space Nuts. 11.30, Ghostbusters, not to be confused with who you're going to call Ghostbusters. 12 o'clock, the Harlem Globetrotters popcorn machine. At 12.30, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. And at 1 o'clock, the CBS Children's Film Festival, hosted by Kukla, Fran, and Ollie. The next two I'll mention real quick are half-page or even less than half-page ads. One is uh, Captain Collector's Comic Library. Hey, kids, did you know that a 1960 Fantastic Four is now worth $100? Well, imagine what your comics will be worth in a few years. Start your collection day. And they're selling binders to three-hole punch your comics and put them in. <laughs> so I think that's funny. <laughs> a little more closer to home, the bottom of page six of the Clue Master story, there's a, a neat article. It's got Bugs Bunny with a safari hat tromping a, um, a carrot. And he says, hey, Doc, come on out to Jungle Habitat for a whole day of family fun. And of course, Jungle Habitat later became part of Great Adventure Six Flags in middle New Jersey. Been to that safari, which is still there today. And I have been there. I was back there right after they opened up the Batman roller coaster. Ah, there you go. The next ad we're going to talk about is Marvel and DC with their very first team up in the Treasury Edition. And obviously, our readers are familiar with the first time Marvel and DC teamed up to bring these fascinating characters to life in a way that you've never seen. And those characters, of course, are Dorothy Gale, the Tin Woodsman, the Cowardly Lion, and the Scarecrow. Because the first time Marvel and DC teamed up, it was to work on MGM's Marvelous 
Wizard of Oz Treasury. Not Superman and Spider-Man. Everybody thinks it's that Superman and Spider-Man, but it's not. Facing page eight of the Alfred story at the end is an ad that's a little close to my heart. A newspaper for comics fans. It says, are you in the comic fandom? A lot of text and a picture of some guy in a leisure jacket at the top. And it's a subscription form for the comics guide for comics fandom. And that newspaper uh, later became Comics Buyer's Guide, which I was a subscriber to for many years. Probably by the time I got to high school, I was a subscriber. And I always wondered how I started on it because I subscribed from at some point, probably before high school till, till it ended. And I imagine I must have seen an ad like this. In a, in a comic and subscribe to it and it would come and I, I devoured it. At first, it was a lot more selling and buying and then it became a news source and an editorial source. The guy in the, in the leisure jacket is Alan Light who started the magazine who later uh, sold the publication and the editors that people may be familiar with, Don and Maggie Thompson, took over the Comics Buyer's Guide. So really a important thing for me. And the next ad we have is very, very close to home because we're going to talk about the next issue, a new novel length. Batgirl, Robin Adventure, Isle of a Thousand Thrills. And of course, that graphic features the fetching image of Robin and Batgirl. Yeah, absolutely. You know we're going to refer to that as the fetching Batgirl and Robin image from now on. (laughs) And then the best piece facing that page is Greetings from the Batman Family, 1961, attributed to Bob Kane, but in my research anyway, most do say that it was actually drawn by Sheldon Maldoff with a great image. Bat Shadow in the background. It's got Batman, Batmite, Alfred, Commissioner Gordon, Batwoman, Robin, the original Batgirl, and Ace, the Bat Hound in the bottom. Fabulous thing, Sean. I know you you really like this image too. It's fantastic. I love it. This is just so wholesome and charming and everyone's smiling and having a good time. Ace is loving all the attention. I just love it. I love the classic Batman family characters reading the Batman family book these people were strangers to me and I was fascinated to learn there was a Batwoman. I'd never heard of her before. Knowing that there was this other Batgirl, that really like amazed me. Mm -hmm. This image has been used in a lot of places. The first place that it was used was the back cover of Batman Annual number two. That did not say 1961 on it. It just says greetings from the Batman family. It was used again on another Batman Annual number seven, I believe, in the back cover. And at some point along the way, they decided to add the 1961 i assume to make it clear because you know here we are in 1975 just like you like, who's this that's not batgirl we just read a story with batgirl in it that's not batgirl who is that so i can only assume that that's why they they added that but it's a great great image we'll definitely include this one yeah it's, it's well worth it and the next thing we're going to talk about is a text piece and i said last issue last episode I love text pieces. So last time we learned about Batgirl and Robin, and this time we are learning about the history of Commissioner Gordon, Alfred, Julie Madison, who I was familiar with, and Linda Page, who even now, I don't think I've ever read a Batman story with Linda Page, goes into the history of Vicki Vale, goes into the history of the Batwoman and Batgirl, and then just little quick capsule descriptions of Ace, Batmite, Bat Boy, Batman Jr., Batman Jones, and Bat Ape. <laughs> I like Batman Jones. <laughs> 
I don't know that I know who that is, although I guess I'll do some. I, I think I've seen a cover. I think I've seen a cover with Batman Jones on it. I don't know that. I haven't. I don't think I've read actually read that story. Following the all reprints theme of this issue, we get a reprint of the Shazam Twinkies ad, which is fantastic. And then the last page of the magazine, not the inside front cover, but the last actual comic page, is one of my favorite ads. It's appeared in a lot of comics around this time. Is a great image of Superman at the top, surrounded by his titles: Superman, World's Finest action superman family justice league and superboy and the legion of superheroes and then underneath the batman with his titles batman world's finest justice league brave and the bull batman family and detective comics and superman says you can find me in every issue of these comics look for these titles and batman says look for me in every comic that has one of these titles on the cover just a great ad and I'm, i can imagine 10 year old me saying yeah yeah i get that one i get that one i, I you know i i enjoyed all these titles at that time so it's a great great ad i'm gonna go off topic just for a second it does disappoint me that so when you're looking at these you can see all the logos and you match them up like superman batman they both have world's finest they both have justice league they both have their family title and then batman has the brave and the bold which was like a great title oh yeah superman had superboy and the legion of superheroes which wasn't really like a superman team-up title (laughs) and then and then when superman did get his team-up title it was called dc comics presents which I love that title, but that should have been like a showcase for like every other kind of DC superhero. And Superman's title should have been something like the super and the... The strong and the and the mighty or something. Yeah, something like that. I, I wish Superman's team-up title would have been a play on the brave and the bold. So this is 1975. I think DC Comics Presents was... What, 78 or 79? I, I know that. Yeah. Because yeah. I, I, I linked that to the New Teen Titans, and that was issue 26, I think, and that's 1980. So probably 78 by the time DC Comics Presents came around. It took them that long to, to figure that out, I guess. <laughs> Maybe they were worried about, about oversaturation of Superman. And I think weren't the first two issues of DC Comics part of the DC explosion? It could have been. I think they are. They'll correct me if I'm wrong. But that title survived. That title survived. Yeah. Or it could have been that that was right after. I'd have to look at the timeline. It could have been that that was when they started reopening the line again. Yeah. All right, let's move on. How about we get to that third story, Sean? Fantastic. All right, so the third story is called The Clue Master's Topsy-Turvy Crimes, starring Batman, Robin, and Aunt Harriet. <laughs> 14 pages, written by Gardner Fox again, with Carmine Infantino and Sid Green on the inks. And it originally appeared in Detective Comics 351 from 1966. Uh Uh-oh. Our story starts out with Aunt Harriet accidentally discovering the Batcave. Bruce and Dick notice she was there and change the elevator to disguise the entrance. Then they come upstairs and mansplain to her that she imagined the whole thing. But Harriet is not put off and apparently has time to put wet tar (laughs) on every single road around Wayne Manor to see where the Batmobile exits. No problem for the dynamic duo who figured this out and simply used a recently installed Bat hydrofoil to elevate the Batmobile over the tar, leaving no evidence of their exit. Out in patrol, they're ambushed with a flare bomb by a new costume supervillain, the Clue Master. They have a brief tussle with his gang, but the bad guys get away. They haven't stolen anything, but they have left something behind. A clue. We then get four very dense panels of exposition by Clue Master, who using dated baseball references, points out that all other villains are losers since they are psyched out against Batman before they even start. So his plan is to figure out Batman's secret identity and dispose of him in his civilian guise. Simple, right? Well, how's he going to do that? Well, remember that flare bomb? It actually released a special chemical that adhered to the tires of the Batmobile. Clue Master is able to follow the tire tracks 
until they disappear. Turns out by using the good old bat hydrofoil, the dynamic duo have avoided their secret IDs being exposed. Thanks, Anne Harriet. So back in the Batcave, the world's greatest detectives cannot figure out the clue. So they give up and they go out on patrol again the next night and they happen to stumble upon the gang. Clue Master actually wanted them to find them and they fell into another trap where they find another clue. Back in the Batcave, they still can't figure out the clues until Dick has the revelation that they simply need to turn them upside down. That's the topsy-turvy adventure, I guess. They come upstairs and discover a video camera planted by Aunt Harriet. She has not given up. But when they take the film back down to the Batcave, they find that the film is overexposed by that 1960s nemesis, radiation. Turns out that the second clue was coated with a substance that Clue Master could track. So they hop back into the Batmobile and head to a different handy cave. They exit in civilian clothes, but are made up to look different than Bruce and Dick. Sure enough, one of Clue Master's thugs takes their picture and hustles back to his hideout. Batman and Robin follow him and they make quick work of the gang. Clue Master thinks he's so clever. He thinks he's won until he gets to the jail and sees in a cell across the way the real people that Batman and Robin made themselves up to look like. He realizes he was fooled. Finally, Bruce convinces Aunt Harriet that she was also wrong, even though she was really right, by creating a trick film showing Batman and Robin meeting him and Dick. Dick gets a little meta by creating a sign that when turned upside down says the end. So, Sean, what do you think of this story from 1966? I have a very controversial opinion. I like Blue Master a lot. I think he looks fantastic. I'm not crazy about his color combination. <laughs> but the outfit with the vials on each side. Yeah. Batman just has a belt, but Clue Master has all of these canisters. I love the kerchief covering his face. He's COVID ready. I think that just looks so sharp. I did think it is odd in the story that we don't even know his name they never tell us what clue master's name is and i like that he recognizes the psychological disadvantage you're going up against batman already you have that mental block so those things i love it's carmine infantino back when he was doing beautiful artwork the camera is turning around his head like you see the back of his head you see three quarter you see both his eyes that part is beautiful so I like Clue Master a lot. I think he's great. I don't disagree with you. I think there's a lot to like about this story. There's a lot of silly parts. The Anne Harriet stuff is silly, uh, but his ideas at least have a defense to them. Nowadays, Clue Master is best known for being the father of Stephanie Brown, who becomes yeah. Spoiler and Batgirl and Robin and whatever identity she is today. But pre-crisis, he only appeared six times. He really did not appear that often. Yeah, I don't like the orange, but the vials, I remember being a kid saying, what is, what is, what is that? <laughs> you know, what has he got all over his body? And then just thinking it's like Batman's pouches just taped to his body, which I thought was kind of funny. It's like on page five, when he crashes the vial in front of the Batmobile. Oh, okay. Now I understand what they are. Bruce and Dick are kind of jerky to Anne Harriet. <laughs> They're like, well, she was, she was in the Batcave. Okay. She was in the Batcave. And here, so here's the line. She's in the Batcave. She saw it with her. She could have just waited for them to come back, mm -hmm. confronted them as Batman and Robin. She doesn't do that. She escapes. Okay, I can get that. They change the elevator into a closet. Okay, so they're like, no, no, you imagined everything. And then when she doesn't give up, then they create a film with <laughs> Batman and Robin coming out of the closet that and meeting Dick and Bruce. So, so none of it really makes any sense. You just got to go with it. Even if you're going to get on board with this conceit that they can gaslight her or whatever into not believing the elevator was there or wasn't there, there's still a Batcave underneath Wayne Manor. So wh <laughs> <Right>. why... <laughs> I guess Batman just said, oh, hey, Bruce. Releases it. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. And, and, two, and two, 
how is all of this than just confiding in Aunt Harriet and right. telling her? <laughs> Even at the end, Robin says, I suppose someday we'll tell her the truth. Just now, wouldn't have this been the perfect time? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I definitely love civilians who help superheroes. So like Alfred and and I know people hate Snapper Car. I love him. I absolutely love him. <laughs> but anytime I don't know if I'll agree with you on that one. Anytime there's normal people helping out, I love that. You know, that kind of makes me think, oh well maybe I could help a superhero someday in, in some way. No, I, I mean that was the whole point behind Robin in the first case, right? Get the, the reader to identify. You got a young boy reading the stories, put him in the story. And I do have to call out the art. See the bottom of page 13 where Robin died on the bomb and Batman's worried about him but then Robin is is okay the bomb didn't fully explode but you know you see Robin his uniform is torn and and he's looking a bit of a mess and you know you didn't see that a lot in that Silver Age book oh I like that when I was a kid I liked anytime I saw the costume in a different state so if it was like ripped or torn or Batman or Superman or whoever would take off their cape or something like that I always liked the mechanics of costumes I always thought that was cool yeah so seeing it ripped up and torn here like yeah i thought that was cool now i will say i do like blue master as a villain however i was a little disappointed because in his first panel his introductory speech to batman rhymes <laughs> and i thought he was gonna rhyme all the way through and i love rhymes in comics so i was a little disappointed but the other thing I love is when he's giving his psychological motivation and he cites all of the baseball statistics, I was wondering maybe like he was in cahoots with Sportsmaster. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, overall, fun story. Oh, I still have lots more to talk about. Oh, you about. have lots more? Go <laughs> for it. More. Oh, go for I'm, it. I'm, I'm horning in on your story. The other thing I loved is I love that his clues are visual and kind of like things that they are holding because it reminds me of A Wrinkle in Time. When you read A Wrinkle in Time, they explain one of the sci-fi devices by having a picture. So it is a prose novel, but there's a graphic in the novel of the ant with the string. So anytime it's something like that where you can see it, I think it's super cool. Now, not to go back on what I said, because the first clue is great and works super well right side up and upside down. But how in the name of Gotham City are you looking at this sea serpent? And you, you can't, well, maybe you, maybe you can tell, but I am air quoting sea serpent. I don't see how you look at that and just don't automatically flip it because you can see a duck's head in the corner <laughs> yeah that, that one's not that effective so that covers that story and now we are going to move on to the bat timeline in this segment we're going to take another look at the titles that dc published this month and what the rest of the batman family was doing at that time and all of this is thanks to mike's amazing world of dc comics for the newsstand feature of august 1975 so first we are going to start off with batman number 269 and I don't have this issue, but it's a fantastic cover. Batman and a woman are in the center, and all of these devices of death are pointing at them. And the story is called The Daily Death of Terry Tremaine. The Detective Comics this month has a great Ernie Chan cover. It's number 453, I should say, where Batman is on TV, and there's a family in the foreground. We interrupt this program 
to bring you a live broadcast of the assassination of the Batman. And for your 25 cents, you also got a backup strip of the elongated man, Yay! which is always fun. Our next Batman family tie-in is the Joker. And it's Joker number four, a gold star for the Joker. And it guest features Green Arrow and Dinah Lamp. Justice League this month, 124, has one of the best covers mm-hmm. that you're going to see. It's a team up with the JLA JSA and it has the Justice Society members uh, on the cover with the Golden Age Robin in his Neil Adams outfit pointing to the Justice League accusing them. And this is a, a gotta pick it up issue for That's sure. That's a fantastic story. So we are veering to the rest of the newsstand now. So Paul and I each have an allowance of $5, and we're going to read off the issues and books that we're going to get for our $5. So I am going to get Action Comics number 453, which has Superman pulling off a face mask and Clark Kent lying in the background. We have Adventure Comics number 442, and that's an Aquaman issue, so that's always fantastic. I'm going to get Spider-Man number 150. I'm going to get the Avengers number 141, which has a heroes versus villains running towards each other cover, which is always fantastic. I'm going to get Fantastic Four number 164 with the Crusader on the cover. Flash number 237, which has the Flash and the reverse Flash. So it's always, always a great story. I'm going to venture over to Marvel and get Human Torch number eight. I'm going to get Josie and the Pussycats number 85 because I loved that show so much. I am then going to get Marvel Team Up number 39, which features the Human Torch and Spider-Man in action together. At the time, there is no way in the world I would have purchased MGM's Marvelous Wizard of Oz number one treasury, but through the magic of retroactivity, I am going to get it. I'm also going to pick up Richie Rich Gold and Silver number two. I'm going to pick up Shazam number 21, which is a fantastic cover because it has Captain Marvel with his foot in a rat trap and rat people looming over him. I'm going to get Superman number 293, which has Superman standing while people are writhing in pain on the floor below him. I'm going to get Gold Key Comics Digest number 55. And I know Gold Key Comics are not great, but I love Digests. And this is Walt Disney Comics and Stories. There's also a story of Dick Turpin, and I have no idea who that is. But I did have a CD from Freddy and the Dreamers that had that song, and now I know what that is. And the last one is Walt Disney Showcase number 32 with Spin and Marty. And that takes me up to $4. So the rest of it, I'm going to get some candy and a soda. What are you going to get, Paul? Great stuff. Well, we had a lot of overlaps. The first one on my list is the first one showing on Mike's Amazing World website is First Issue Special number eight. Now, at the time, I did not own this, and I had never read The Warlord until, I want to say, five years ago. I just had never read it. I always liked Mike Grell, as we talked about last issue. Loved the Legion, loved his Green Arrow, and one of my favorite all-time series is John Sable Freelance, but I just never picked up The Warlord. So a couple of years ago, I picked up and read The Showcase Presents of the warlord had the first i don't know 15 issues plus this first issue special in it and i was like man this is great and that's it there's no other collected editions really of uh, this series and i was fortunate enough to come upon a sale at a comic shop and i bought 70 or 80 issues out of the 130 issue run for like 30 cents an issue but was able to collect pretty much the whole series not paying any more than a dollar or two for any individual issue 
And I read the whole thing like five years ago and enjoyed it even when Mike Grella got off the book. So anyway, that's special to me now. And I do have that issue now in my collection. Amazing Spider-Man was also a, a special one to me. I, I don't remember where I bought specific comics very often. We know how Rob <laughs> remembers all his purchases from Mountain Comics and various places in the newsstand and Voorhees and all that. I mean, I know where I bought my comics. I don't have particular memories, but this one I do. I remember this one. We mentioned this was August 1975. My family, we were down in Ocean City, New Jersey for a week. And at the corner store there, I purchased this issue because it was the conclusion of that original mm. clone story that we talked about last month. And it's a great issue. It's a quote anniversary issue. It's got Spider-Man holding his head and all his villains are surrounding him. And he's like, how am I going to get out of this? Great, great stuff. I also would pick up the Avengers issue with the heroes and villains coming in. That is the Squadron Supreme. And it is, oh, by the way, an issue by Englehart and George Perez. So you're not going to be disappointed. The next one I have on my list is The Flash, number 237, as you talked about, continuing that story when Iris was going home to her family in the future. And coincidentally, another tug of war <laughs> uh, cover where Iris is in between Reverse Flash and The Flash. The next one I'm going to mention is Giant Size mm. Doctor Strange, number one. It has a beautiful Gil Kane and Frank Giacola cover. Doctor Strange with his arms crossed facing this monster who about to, to menace him. Beautiful cover. I did not have this at the time, but I read the issue since. But I also was fortunate enough to pick up a copy of this that was actually part of the Don and Maggie Thompson collection. So they were selling off their collections. So those were the editors of the Comics Buyer's Guide for many years. So it's a special thing in my collection to have something that was actually part of their collection at one point in the past. So but for those of you who missed out on Giant Size X-Men number one, there's Giant Size X-Men number two, which I I definitely would not have bought. But I did buy The Invaders, number three. I was very intrigued by the, and I think probably from really liking the Justice Society characters, The Invaders were Marvel's golden age heroes. And this was a series set during World War II and had really interesting stories. It had Frank Robbins art. So Frank Robbins was both a writer and an artist. He wrote that first appearance of Man Bat that we talked about last issue. He also did art and he did a lot of art in The Invaders that I was not a huge fan of, but I always liked the comic. Moving on, Iron Man number, what is it, number 80, has a really cool Jack Kirby cover with Iron Man flying right at us. You mentioned Marvel Team Up. Marvel Team Up, like Brave and the Bold, was a must-buy for me. Brave and the Bold was my favorite, along with Justice League. And my last one, that Superman issue you mentioned about Thirsty Thursday, Superman standing in front of a water hydrant, not letting anybody have a drink of water. So that's it. I didn't add mine up. Hopefully, I have enough money in my pocket. I'll use your extra leftover Absolutely. dollar if it's too I'll much. Absolutely. I'll make sure you get the books that you want. Okay. So, you ready to move on? Absolutely. Our fourth story is called Alfred's Mystery Menu, and it stars Alfred, Batman, and Robin. The writer is Gardner Fox. The penciler is Sheldon Moldorf. The inker is Joe Gila. And this originally appeared in Batman number 191 from 1967. Batman and Robin are prowling the night-shrouded streets of Gotham, looking for the whereabouts of their ever-faithful manservant, Alfred. Alfred has gone missing, and even after checking out the Underworld Grapevine, which I really, really hope means that they chatted with E.L. O'Brien and he heard nothing, so they called upon Matches Malone to get some info. But they still have nothing. Just as they are about to take out an ad in the Underworld Star, see the new Teen Titans number three, they see some bad guys stealing items from the food specialty shoppie, which, by the way, I never trust a shop that adds that weird extra P.E. at the end, <laughs> except for Pop Tate's Chocolate Shop. 
After tossing out some Rainier Wolfcastle-worthy punching puns and stopping the thieves, the dynamic duo head on back to stately Wayne Manor to watch the sunrise together. Sorry, Dr. Wortham. <laughs> but in a somewhere out there beneath the pale moonlight, someone's thinking of me and loving me tonight moment, Alfred is looking at the exact same sunrise from the mansion of Duke Kelsey, the newest member of the Millionaire Mobsters Club who I will not abbreviate as MMC because then I'll spend the next hour talking about the 1990s Mickey Mouse Club. And that's a future idea for a podcast that I'm not giving away here. As the newest member of the Millionaire Mobsters Club, Duke has to give an initiation spread to all of the other members of the Millionaire Mobsters Club. And I realize that this is only the fourth synopsis that I've ever done. And that Silver Age stories are filled with B-O-N-K-E-R-S bonkers storyline. But I was fully prepared to spend the rest of this recap pondering exactly the rules and guidelines to the millionaire mobsters club that they have to follow at their coming out cotillion ball. But Cousin Paul won't let me. Back on track, Sean. Anywho, ATC Pennyworth decides that this is the perfect way to tip off our heroes as to where he is being stashed but he better do it soon before he is slashed. Because of his insider knowledge of mob speak, he has cunningly deduced (laughs) that when Duke Kelsey says, you'll be well taken care of when this is over, Duke means that he is not going to let Alfie hear the ending of Don't Stop Believing. Through an incredibly intricate planned system of food ingredients and recipes, all of which Cousin Paul will explain in great detail when I'm done, Robin and Batman find Alfred just as he's about to start serving dinner. Batman addresses all of the members of the Millionaire Mobsters Club by saying, you have eaten well. You've eaten Gotham's wealth. It's spirit. Your feast is nearly over. From this moment on, none of you are safe. No, I'm just kidding. They pun and punch them all out. The following evening, Aunt Beard, or Aunt Harriet, can't seem to figure out why Robin and Batman aren't having dinner with them. I can't figure out why Bruce and Dick didn't give Alfred a day off after the millionaire mobsters club ordeal. So Paul, what did you think? I I don't know which I like better, your synopsis or the actual story, Sean, but this one is clearly another Silver Age romp, which we got three of them in this issue. Again, art attributed to Bob Kane, but it's Sheldon Maldoff, as we indicated. Great shot on the first page of Robin clobbering the mobster in the grocery store. I do think it's a little more clever of Alfred to give Batman and Robin a clue where being held hostage than Commissioner Gordon last month, who by accident <laughs> gave them a clue. So let's give Alfred some props for at least coming up with the idea. I love that his jump in logic that if I am going to make this dinner, they're obviously going to steal the ingredients for the dinner. And obviously Batman and Robin will analyze the ingredients that were stolen. And then obviously they will figure out what the meal is and then interpret the clue. <laughs> I love it all. Everything you said is spot on fantastic. And I just love that there's such the formality of everything. The formality of being part of the Millionaire's Murderers Club. And I have to I have to give the other members this lavish brunch buffet. I love that. I love the formality of Alfred keeping his recipes in a safe and the, in a safe. the formality <laughs> that they feel bad that they have to break into his safe to save him. I love it all. I 
think this is in terms of the, like the older reprints in the back this is one of my absolute favorites and not even like ironically this is complete honest total love for this and it's hilarious because you think stories of this time are so different than today but literally on page three of the story so batman and robin stop the burglars in the food specialty shoppy but Batman is holding a criminal by the neck and swinging him around to hit the other criminal. That looks flat out savage by 2021 standards. <laughs> and they're just punning through this whole fight and Robin's dragging one of the crooks over and says, that was over fast, Batman. I was just starting to work up an appetite. The other thing I absolutely love, and again, I am being honest when I say this. On page four, they are coming back to the Batcave and the caption reads, dawn tints the sky, an angry red. Oh my God, that is poetry. And again, I'm not making fun. That is beautiful poetry. I, I love that caption. Gardner Fox, everybody could understand. You could be six years old and read this story and understand it because here is Alfred and he takes care of Bruce and Dick right? He makes their meals. He does their laundry. And they understand that because they have a mom and dad that does that for them, right? And then he gets kidnapped. And so how are they going to rescue him? So that's a tricky one. And then to have him be clever enough to set up these clues, even through this improbable sequence of events, it's still pretty clever. I read an autobiography of Gardner Fox a couple of years ago that was really terrific. He was a smart guy and he lasted in this industry a long time, not without merit. Alfred has such faith in the intelligence of Batman and Robin that he's going to lay this plan out. And then the best thing is, because Batman and Robin foiled the crime, they messed it up. And I know this is going to sound... It really makes me think of Toy Story, because at the end of Toy Story, the rocket is strapped to the back of Buzz, and they're trying to get... You know, oh, you know, we have to light this, so we're going to have this match. Oh, no, the match doesn't work. So you have a solution to the problem, but that doesn't work and obviously the writer knows that and plans that mm -hmm. but it's quote-unquote harder it's another obstacle that they have to face I just think that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Great point. The Millionaire's Mobster Club is terrific, as you mentioned. And I love how the mobster speaks back on page four. He's like, yeah, me, Duke Kelsey. <laughs> I finally stole the million iron men. So I've got a good invitation spread. See, you can just hear him. I think the Millionaire Mobsters Club is the Saturday Night Live Five Timers Club. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. You get a jacket, you have a special place. Or the guys who uh, pay for and watch the squid game. <laughs> That's the modern equivalent. I like how he's serving dinner and Batman and Robin are peeking in the window and he's like, oh, there they are. I should have known they'd make it even though they missed that one clue. And he gets in on it too. You know, he's pushing plates. I love how he dumps the dessert on the one guy's head. And he makes sure to dump some of the dessert on the gun so the gun doesn't work. Very clever. At this point, he wasn't in MI6, but this straight up here is Jason Bourne stuff, like where you take a magazine to defeat someone. He's using his plates. He's using the food. <laughs> I I'm not being funny. Like This is definitely my favorite reprint of this issue. I love it. It's fantastic. Oh, yeah. I would agree. Although I'd like the first one quite a bit because it sets up the theme of the whole series. This story is the one I got the best kick out. And to be honest with you, Sean, this is a story I remembered. I'm like, oh, I remember this story. Story when I reread it as we started to prepare for the issue. Now, before we sign off, as most of our listeners know, running the Fire and Water Podcast Network has gotten more costly over the years as more and more shows were added. So if you're enjoying what you hear on this show or any of the other shows, please consider becoming a patron. We are not all Bruce Wayne, but any small amount that you can give helps defray the cost. 
To find out how, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts and thanks. Now, we're going to play a couple of podcast promos, and when we return, we will read your listener feedback. The Fire and Water Podcast Network is a collection of super friends plus shag. So what could be more appropriate than a podcast about the super friends? It's For All Mankind, a Super Friends podcast, a read-through show about the classic DC comic book series covering all 47 issues of the original run, plus a few surprises. Hosted by me, Rob Kelly, and a rotating group of my Super Friends. Coming soon from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. It all looks good to me. Dr. Fate. Dr. Midnight. Starman. Johnny Quick. Wildcat. Power Girl. The All-Star Squadron. Spectre. Firebrand. Amazing Man. Huntress. Cyclone. Sandman. Mr. Terrific. Star Commander Steel. Seven Soldiers of Liberty. The Infinity Incorporated. Those are just some of the celebrated and beloved heroes associated with Earth 2 and the Justice Society of America. These daring mystery men and women banded together in 1940 to form the first super team in comics. They inspired a decades-long legacy of heroes who would follow in their footsteps. And now they've inspired us to launch a new podcast. Justice Society presents a new anthology on the Fire and Water Podcast Network featuring a variety of themed shows with different hosts celebrating some of their favorite comics and characters associated with the Golden Age of Comics, Earth 2, the JSA, and beyond. Join the fight for justice and subscribe to Justice Society Presents on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Welcome back. In this part of the reunion, we are going to read and respond to our bat kin folks' messages and feedback. We got replies from cousins, aunts, uncles, friends of the family, and more. In order to comment, please go to fireandwaterpodcast.com and find the relevant episode of Batman Family Reunion. In addition, remember, you can always email us at batmanfamilyreunion at gmail.com. And remember, this is a reunion. So if there's an upcoming episode you would like to join us to talk about, or even just a particular story in that issue, email us and we will slot you in. We're happy to report we already have a few spots. We received emails from Captain Entropy, Jim Beard, and Martin Gray. I will deal with later on in the comments section. <laughs> Love you, Martin. All right, so let's get started on feedback from the website. First up is Network co-founder and all-star Rob Kelly. He, of course, has too many shows to count. For example, Who's Who, Aquaman and Firestorm, and Pod Dylan. Oh, and by the way, take a listen to the latest Treasury Cast, where Sean and I guest hosted to talk about the limited collector's edition C44 starring Batman. Rob gave both of us our initial shots at being podcasters, so it was entirely appropriate he gets to go first. Rob says, welcome to the network, boys. Hope you survive it. Well, we hope so too, Rob. Great first episode. As a kid, I only brought Batman family sparingly, so a lot of this will be new to me. I loved all the various segments. Highly entertaining. Thanks, Rob. He, too, has had non-Butler-like thoughts, as, <laughs> as have we all. And then he solved the mystery. Uh, the, uh, he says, yes, the Conway Redondo Knights was meant to be an all-original Treasury edition. Around that time, DC scaled back its new treasuries, and the series was never finished, as we kind of guessed. The pages, tragically, have never been printed everywhere. That is the tragedy. Some of the originals have appeared, and they are gorgeous, yeah. a true waste. So, yeah, we agree with that. We, I would have loved to have seen that. We talked about that in that first episode. So um, thanks for uh, commenting, Rob. We're going to pour one out for the treasuries that were never printed. Next, we heard from yet another F&W all-star, Chris Franklin from Supermates. 
House of Frankenstein, and the JLU cast, among others. We're also super excited that he recently returned to the Starman Chronicles under the JSA Presents umbrella. And Chris says, great first episode, fellas. You really hit the ground running, and I love your ap approach to the material. I came into Batman Family after it merged with Detective, but I have very fond memories of this era of DC, so I'm really looking forward to your coverage. Thanks for keeping the bat signal shining on the network. Well, um, kind of awkward because like Chris just thanked us for keeping the bat signal shining. And I really have to admit, I didn't do it. Paul didn't do it. It was Jim Gordon. He was bored. He decided to shine the bat signal. Like, thank goodness. So Chris, you're going to have to thank Jim. We go over to his house at his front door and thank him. <laughs> Next up, friend of the network, Chuck Coletta says, I was really looking forward to this podcast. Batman Family was one of those books I picked up in back issues when I first started reading comics in the 80s. The story I most associate with Batman Family is the Joker's Daughter Saga. Got something there, Chuck. We agree with you. We are looking forward to getting to that. It's certainly the high mark of the sort of pre-dollar comic size uh, episodes or issues of the Batman Family. So uh, hold on to your seats for when we get to that one. It's really fantastic how well, how warmly remembered that storyline is. Captain Entropy next says, I'm thrilled this new series is finally here. Episode one did not disappoint. I too loved Batgirl's response to Robin's chauvinism. Colonel Harry Summers called what Babs displays here, escalation dominance, a decisive factor in many a conflict. You too can have the picture of Robin and Batgirl posing in the last panel, touchingly. I added fetching, the fetching one. I'll take the pics of Barbara addressing Congress at the top of the page. <sighs> Captain Entropy, you're not wrong on that one. That's a pretty nice Mike Grell illustration. I agree with you. Captain Entropy continues, looking forward to more reunion fun next month. Hope there's still some potato salad left. Wait, has anyone told Rob McCarthy you mentioned an issue of the Joker? That's going to be important to him. To which Rob McCarthy responds, you know, I heard that. And not just any issue, the Creeper one, which was not only my second fave in the entire series, but started my love of the Creeper. I agree. I think the Creeper is a fantastic character. Like, visually, he's arresting. Every, every issue, I always hear. <laughs> uh, moving on, Mitch Fletcher questions, what exactly happened to the Batman Nightcast? Is that just over now? So Mitch, sorry to tell you, but yes, uh, Nightcast is on hiatus for the foreseeable future. Batman Family Reunion, we've taken over the feed. But we want to assure everybody that Sean and I did not win Nightcast in a drunken game of poker with those guys. It, it was totally consensual, this handoff. <laughs> Wardale Terry says, Batman Family was an important comic to me. I hadn't fully realized it until this show was announced. And I got so excited. Number 17 is one of the best comic books ever. Amen. Yeah. There are stories, sequences, and individual panels from this series that are indelibly etched into my memory. Number 12 was the first one I bought. And if you are seeking guests at the picnic, I'd love to yap about that ish. I'll bring some buttermilk biscuits. Ward, I completely agree, obviously, with Batman Family, but there are lots of other comics where I can remember the panel, I can remember what they say. Um, you know, certain phrases I still probably use in my everyday conversation. It, it definitely affects us. And as far as guesting uh, coming to the picnic, we have you penciled in and we'll contact you when it gets closer. 
And I can't wait for those biscuits. Next up, Lizanne Oswald says, impressive podcast, most impressive. Well, thanks, Lizanne. I have this story with Batgirl and Robin somewhere, probably in the 70s reprint you're talking about. But the artwork is very good. No argument there. The story is what it is for the time and always like the shipping of Robin and Batgirl. The story with Alfred is decent enough. I really don't have anything to add to it. The Gordon story was fine, though I do like him better as he became later. A tough ally who worked well with Batman. Man Bat makes a decent character, but I do agree he makes a better anti-hero than a villain. Though it is weird that scientists in comics always decide to test their experiments on themselves, <laughs> never with a lab rat or something. I thought that was funny. Can you imagine if that's if people were just testing themselves with the vaccines for COVID? Be like, who knows what we would trying to trouble we'd be in? The Alfred bit at the end was decent enough. Lizanne goes on, and at this point, they brought the outsider back so many times. I would like to see the character on Earth 3 version fighting Owlman and the Crime Syndicate. That's an interesting thought. I think there was a um, Earth 3 villain version of Alfred that was in the, whatever the New 52 villains crossover was back in like 2013 mm. or 14. And the Crime Syndicate was reintroduced. There was a, an Earth 3 version of Alfred. I don't know if they called him the outsider or not, but I'm pretty sure it was there. At any rate, good first episode, The Bat Family was a long-running comic for a reason, and it's pretty good. Can't wait to hear the next podcast. Well, you're not going to get any argument from us. We agree. It's one of our favorites, and so that's why we're doing the whole podcast. Absolutely. Next up is Ange. And Ange says, excellent premiere to an excellent show. I have to say, I always wondered about the cover story. I have seen that plenty of times, but never read the story. So it was great to finally hear about it. As you say, the Babs moment at the end is the kapow. Don't know why Benedict Arnold has a flaming sword but it, you're calling a flaming sword. Oh, oh no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Ange. I thought, I thought you were calling me from, um, a flaming sword. But it is a cool visual. And I didn't know about the tie-in to first issue special. Very cool info. For me, I love dollar comics and bought them when I could. I can't wait to hear you cover the Michael Golden Demon stories, the standout memories for me as a kid. And Demon in Batman Family Detective was my introduction to demon i don't know that it could have gone any better for me that michael golden artwork oh my god it's so beautiful and dollar comics uh you're you're singing my song i just recently talked about this on treasury cast the digest size is probably my favorite format but i loved dollar comics you know for one dollar you probably got five or six stories it was heroes that i had never heard of never seen that i never read monthly but i got introduced to so many of them through all the different dollar comics ah oh, i love it uh moving on friend of the network tim price says hooray a new show on the nightcast feed and giving me ex an excuse to read more new to me comics on the dcu app batman family was published before my new comic collecting started but i did happen to get two issues back in the day i forget how but i'm looking forward to this especially the batgirl robin stories and wow, was Mike, Art, Mike Grell's artwork top-notch in issue number one, worth mm -hmm. the price of admission, mm -hmm. admission alone. Great job with the first episode. You both have such joy and enthusiasm for the stories. Thank you much. And see you next Bat Fam time, Bat Fam podcast. Well, thank you very much, Tim. Uh, we are enthusiastic about this and we, you know, we're hoping that that came through. So uh, we appreciate that feedback because that's one of our goals. Thanks, Tim. And now we get to the saga of Martin Gray. <laughs> Congratulations on the new show. The enthusiasm oozed out of every pore of my smartphone. <laughs> I started that sentence and had no idea how to finish it. Anyway, I can't yet tell whose voice is whose. It's almost like you're Canadians. 
but I shall get there. Okay, so Martin, this is Paul. I'm the good-looking one. This is Sean. I'm the one speaking into your ear right now, making you understand things about Batman family that you've never known before. If you hear anyone talking about Kylie Minogue, it's me. If you hear someone talk about musicals, it's me. If you hear someone talking about Robin's Thick Thighs, it's me. If you hear someone talking about hating cover boxes, it's me. If you hear synopsis that go on too long, it's me. If you hear someone not being able to say synopsis properly, it's me. If you hear someone say something smartly, succinctly, that's Paul. But if you hear someone say something with a lot of, lot of alliteration, that's me. <laughs> so getting back to Martin, he said he was also with Batman Family from the beginning and also about 10 when it started. I love the idea, the format, the stories, but that logo stank to high heaven. Why would DC base the logo on one they not used for a few years? It's not like it offered obvious room for expansion and transformation. Just look at the way family is awkward, awkwardly added and the scalloped cape is squared off. Weirdly, though, I love the way you expanded it. Well, Martin, thanks. I cannot take credit for that. I'm going to give credit to my brother-in-law, Todd, who we hope will be a visitor on the reunion show at some future episode. But uh, he, I asked him to see what he could do with it, and he came back with this idea, and uh, we love it. So thanks for the, uh, the praise on the logo, but I'll give my props to Todd. Okay. It starts to get shaky because Martin says, as for the cover design, I adore boxed images, though they're better when the surrounds are white. Um, okay. Um, okay. Martin, you're, you're giving Sean apoplexy here, Martin. Then Martin says, superb spot on the Nick Cardi Shazam Batman cover. But poor Robin, can he never have top billing? I know I sound like I'm obsessed, but the Robin and Batgirl logos are just woeful. Okay, Martin's swinging back around to my side because I wholeheartedly agree with you, Martin. Now, the great thing is the super beautiful, wonderful landmark issue seven, which we will talk about when we get there, introduces beautiful logos for Robin and Batgirl. Then Martin continues, the problem with this issue is that there are no villains. Well, no actual bat villains. I had heard of Benedict Arnold in those pre-Wikipedia days, but didn't know what he was supposed to have betrayed. Super Hips High School? Thankfully, this story explains it all. Now, I'm going to let our listeners in on a secret. So Paul typed up the script for this, and here he says, Pause for Sean to point out the differences in history lessons in the U.S. and the U.K. And Paul, you're really giving me a lot of credit because <laughs> when it comes to knowledge, I'm much more of a TCM channel watcher than a history channel watcher. I do know about Benedict Arnold because Peter Brady portrayed him in a class play when he wanted to be George Washington. <laughs> So I know he betrayed the United States, Washington, something. Uh, the U.S. educational system. Martin continues, the art is just gorgeous, although Bad's hair is a bit mumsy. Question, how did Benedict Arnold know what a camera was? And given the spirit of America business, wouldn't this have been a fine place to have Uncle Sam appear? Yes. Martin, yes, you're swinging back around to my side. I agree. Then Martin continues, funnily enough, 
A couple of months earlier, Elliot S. Madden had Batgirl team up with Supergirl in Superman Family number 171 to fight a reincarnated Cleopatra. I think the teacher turned writer was doing history that year. Very, very good analysis, Martin. I agree. The Alfred story is cute and the Man Bat a classic, though the Commissioner Gordon story is really boring. I pity anyone reading the Man Bat story on the DC app with new recoloring. Ugh. I agree with you, Martin. We are simpatico. We are exactly the same. One mind, one thought. I agree. The new coloring is horrible. It, it's like when Lucas goes back and re-messes up Star Wars. Uh, that was me. <laughs> now, we're going back to Martin, which he says, speaking of which, why is the Commissioner Gordon story in black and white, given they obviously had color film at one point? Yeah, Martin, uh, we wondered about that a little bit, too. You know, I think because whenever they do the reprints for these various stories, they recolor them now because they didn't have digital masters, so they put them in digital. But as far as I can tell that, Commissioner Gordon's story, the only place it was reprinted is in a showcase where those are in black and white, Showcase Presents collection. So that was our theory. Uh, we, don't, we don't know for sure, but that was our theory. And then Martin continues, well done on the extra features. I especially love the bios of lesser known creators. Now this is Sean interrupting here. I agree, Martin. And I just want to thank Paul for doing all of that work because he <laughs> does a lot of work and brings a lot to carry me. Uh, so fantastic. Now, Apparently, Martin was knocked on the head and the evil twin Martin took over because it says, I've had a hostess Twinkie. It's just shaving foam inside sugar. Every time a superhero claims you get a big delight in every bite, they are lying and should be considered secret society of supervillain material. Martin, 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 Martin Gray, you have turned my heart black by saying horrible, untrue, negative lies about the sweet deliciousness that is one of man's best creations along with the tire, the computer, and that is the Twinkie. Now, I could rhapsodize for 20 more minutes about how beautiful Twinkies are, Please how don't. delicious they are. Please don't. <laughs> I will not. This is at the part where I maybe came to blows mentally about his viewpoints on Twinkies. And I was almost going to end this entire relationship before it even began. However, we guest starred on Treasury Cast with Rob. I, beautiful comment of Noel Coward having to do with Batman and thongs. And Martin Gray came back into my life by saying, so will Batman Family Reunion be changing its name to Thongs and Thighs? And that is the point when Martin and I made up forever, because that is fantastic. And if that wasn't great enough, then he said he thinks the next podcast we should do is Super Team Family Feud. And I love Super Team Family. Paul said, wow, Martin, I love Super Team Family. We will have to make Super Team Family Feud a reality. Maybe an overview of the Adam story on FW Presents. I only wish I had thought of it. And after that, we can do Superman Family Ties. And I love Superman Family. Now, <laughs> I'm not going to host Superman Family because that's a lot of Superman. That's a lot of Superman. I will, be, I will be happy to guest on 
actually, I'll be happy to guest on Super Team Family, and I will guest on Superman Family as well. Yeah, well, let's let's get some Batman Family done before we do that. Anyway, our final comment comes from Scott Dutton, who chimed in with a nice opening episode, guys. Look forward to future episodes. Thanks, Scott. We appreciate it. So, Sean, do you want to read off the names of people who have interacted with us on Twitter and Facebook since we released the first episode? I absolutely will love to do that. So we're going to start off with the Twitter replies. And uh, this is people who have retweeted, tweeted, talked to me, said I'm wonderful, anything like that. If you've done it on Twitter, this is for you. Martin Gray, my new best friend and wonderful podcast future partner and Superman family ties. Tim Price, the pod crasher. Eldon Edwards. Jim Imbrugula. Popcorn Bites. Dr. Pop Culture BGSU. Chris Lydon. Relatively Geeky Podcast Network, Long Box of Darkness, Digest Cast, Treasury, Adam Stabelli, For All Mankind SF, Superman Move Men, Justice Trek Loves America, Rolled Spine Podcasts, Ciscoid, Between the Pages Blogs, Doc Strange, Roger Preeb, Jason Stevenson, Richard Cole, Vaughn Stevens, Jamie McGregor, Adam Stabelli, Sean, Old Spine Podcast, Human Flycast, The Mirror Factory, This Lightsaber Kills Fascists, It's Plastic Man, L. Romero Mero, Between the Pages Blog, Keith G. Baker. That was everyone from Twitter. Before I go on to Facebook, I want to say that if I messed up your name, that means you're extra special to me and I care <laughs> deeply about you. If you responded to any of our Facebook or Twitter messages and I didn't mention you, that means I think even more of you than people who have messed up the names. So turning to Facebook, we have Rex, Max Romero, Mike Thomas, Franklin, Brian Linton, Omar Madlone, Scott Rowland, Trent Lewis, Harry Schlitz, J. Kevin Carrier, Marcus Soroyes, Brian Ng, Brian Green, Alan W. Wright, Terry O'Malley, Kelly Courtney, Mike Jameson, Daniel Adams, John Stibe, Jim Beard, Billy Dunleavy, Gene Hendricks, Chris Karam, Herschel Nemes, Jeremy Bemmett, Robinson, Chris Lydon, Russell Burbage, and Keith G. Baker. Awesome. Well, thank you to all of you. And thanks to all of you who wrote in with comments. We really appreciate the feedback. We are still relatively new at this, so we will take all the constructive comments we can get. We hope you enjoyed this all reprint issue in number two. Tune in again the first week in March, and you will hear us talk about a Batgirl Robin story with art by Jose Luis Garcia Lopez. Praise be his name. And a fantastic Golden Age story by a writer you have never heard of, unless you just happen to listen to Treasury Cast. Anyway, Sean, I am going to head back to the picnic table to get some more apple pie. I will talk to you next month. See you later.